You might have noticed a change in your neighborhood lately. Yep, Sprint stores are now T-Mobile stores. Now that Sprint is T-Mobile, you get more coverage, value, and benefits than ever before. We've invested billions to bring our 5G from big cities to small towns across America. And great coverage is just the start. From high-speed mobile hotspot data to weekly deals and giveaways, our customers get tons of great benefits. Head to your new T-Mobile store to learn more. Qualifying service and capable device required. Coverage not available in some areas. Some uses may require certain plan or features. See T-Mobile.com. It's Say It Ain't Contagious with Adrian Burgos, Craig Calcaterra, Stephen Goldman, Frank Garitti, Lincoln Mitchell, and Tova Wang. Everybody. Welcome back to Say It Ain't Contagious, where we talk about baseball and social justice and politics and where they intersect. My name is Tova Wang. I have a day job as a research fellow at the Harvard Kennedy School, but I'm really just a huge baseball fan. And um, I'll just go around the horn and see how people are feeling today. I am um, I'm okay. I'm certainly better than I have been in a while, but the impeachment proceedings have been astonishing. And the new fo- footage is, you know, horrifying. And man, for me, it's become triggering because I was I was so close by. So I'm thinking of moving. <laughs> Come back but, to New uh, York. I would love to. Well, let's not even go there. Anyway, let me find out how you all are doing. Let me start with Adrian. Hey, it's Adrian Burgos from University of Illinois. It's been quite a week waking up one of the mornings and hearing that Pedro Gomez had died the previous day. And Pedro was one of the kindest, most generous baseball journalists that I had the opportunity to meet. We met on stage, actually, at the Minoso Forum that the Chicago White Sox held. And we corresponded a number of times and run into each other at the ballpark here and there. Always so generous in talking with me and others. And Howard Bryant shared a number of really wonderful tributes about the person that was Pedro. You know, so, you know, I'm heartbroken about losing a guy who, along with Marcos Breton, were the two Latino Titans that that were baseball writers that I knew about growing up. And I would see them on ESPN. It was so different to have a Latino voice brought to these issues about baseball. Yeah, that was another tragic loss. And it's like, how many are we going to have? <laughs> so agree with you there. How about you, Steve? What's going on with you? What are you, what are you thinking about? Well, like you, I've been following the events in Washington. And I, I was just thinking about it. I was tasked to write a kind of season preview about the Washington Nationals. Oh, and I, I don't imagine that anyone will be uh, trying to get a crowd to riot at uh, the ballpark. But I, I was wondering what year it would be non-toxic to add Trump to the president's race. 2050. And for me, it would be never unless maybe you change the format where you give the Trump rubberhead a head start and then a bunch of guys dressed like Josh Hawley try to run after him, kind of blowing kisses or throwing flowers or something. But probably it's best skipped. Um, I will say that the expectation is that President Biden and Vice President Kamala Harris will throw out the first pitch on opening day. So even though I surely will not be in the stadium, I will be very happy to see that. Um, Let me uh, hear the cheery voice of Lincoln Mitchell. I'm trying to recover from that image that Steve presented. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, frankly, the biggest thing in my life is that I'm sudden, I'm an empty nester after a delayed start to my, I guess, late middle age, and that's been a uh, that so, so that's been wearing weighing pretty heavily on me psychologically. You know, my all my empty nest plans about being able to go places and travel and do different work projects, and I made it as far as 116th Street today, <laughs> and and that was very exciting. The the impeachment process and I've I realized yesterday I'm watching it like like I would watch a baseball game I was excited about because except for the differences that you know who won before it started uh, we know it will end in an acquittal but we also I mean an acquittal where 55 or 54 senators vote to convict you know Trump will boast about that but that is 
that's barely an acquittal since it's not a matter of removal. The conviction is a, is a, is a technicality. What what really just uh, upsets me the most about this is that all of this stuff we're learning is stuff that, to a great extent, we already knew. And what what the the lesson, not the lesson, but what keeps coming out of this for me is that I just don't see how we unring this bell. I don't see how we solve this problem. And that, in the bigger picture sense, is what bothers me most and concerns me the most. That and having no one to make the seltzer or take out the recycling at the end of the week. (laughs) Craig, what's going on there? I'm sort of traumatized by two things right now. One is certainly everything we're, we're seeing with the impeachment stuff. I, I, I've been trying to not watch it that much just because, you know, part of what Lincoln says, it seems sort of, you know, preordained and, and we, we know what's going to happen here. This is just an exercise. It's a necessary exercise. Um, you know, you've you got to get everybody on record. And, and I, I know people will say, well, they'll never be held accountable or uh, the voters will always return people like Josh Hawley and whoever. But you got to do it. Um, it's hard to watch, though, because it's just so frustrating to see that, you know, that's how things are going to go. Um, and that, you know, considerations like, uh, you know, raw power and electoral stuff and tying yourself to Trump, you know, are, are way more important than an insurrection. So, you know, I'm sort of watching it, but not watching it. And I'm dealing okay. Far more traumatic for me right now is that for the other podcast that Steve and I do, uh, which is a Bob Dylan podcast, uh, our co-host Mike Farron picked maybe the worst Bob Dylan album possible. And I've been listening to it all week and I'm about ready to die. Which one? Down in the Groove. It has the song, The Ugliest Girl in the World on it. And I, we're recording tomorrow and I don't <laughs> even know if I'm going to be mentally ready for that. <laughs> It's, it's, it's bad. Please, thoughts, prayers for me if you can. Yeah, that does sound like quite the challenge, Craig. Good luck there. Ever since Mike Farron dissed Desire so aggressively. But he was uh, right. Still, no, we're not going to get into that here. But no, I, I, he wasn't. <laughs> Sorry. Wrong podcast. Back on track. Actually, I would, one question, though, I want to ask uh, before moving on from this is, do you think that there will be any surprise Republican votes you know, beyond the Romney, Murkowski people. No, I mean, to the extent they're, quote, surprise votes, what they're going to be is they're going to be prearranged votes. I need to vote to convict. Can we make sure that my vote is not going to be critical? Let me do it. I mean, the, the classic sort of legislative log rolling you see. So I don't think there'll be anything surprising there. There'll just be somebody who will be allowed to vote that way and hopefully not catch a lot of flack because they need to for local reasons. But remember that they have 34 people who want to vote to acquit. Yeah. So everyone else is allowed to. And and you may get as high as 56. I, I don't really see that happening. And the ones who have the close races, you know, and who are not, and are definitely going to be running, Rubio, he's pretty much clearly not going to vote that way. There's not that many Republicans who represent liberal or, or, or kind of purple states. So, you know, and Ron Johnson who actually is in a very purple state is might be the most bizarre kind of conspiracy addled mind in the Senate. And that is saying a lot till Marjorie Taylor green. Wow, gets there. Man. Okay. Yeah. I was like, I was thinking, could, could it get to 58, but uh, we'll see. It's not impossible, but it wouldn't sound yeah. like, well, we can, we can make a betting pool if you want with an over under. So Frank, what's going on in your part of the world? Uh, well, I am not following the impeachment uh, much at all for the reasons that were already stated. By the way, I'm very happy we're including this 21st century um, practice of uh, self-care, checking in on each other, since that's what uh, we do now, and that's a good thing. Plus, we haven't talked in a little while uh, as a collective. Yeah, no, I'm not. I'm, I, I mean, I watched some of the footage from the security cameras, but that's about it, because, uh, you know, uh, it, it's just another instance of watching crimes against humanity get committed again by the U.S. government and by the Republican Party in particular. So, um, yeah, I share the sentiments of a number of us about that. Um, I'm very happy that I didn't watch the Super Bowl. I don't watch oh the football God. anymore, and I'm really happy. And it, w- it was actually kind of fun to watch all of some of my friends, you know, lamenting Tom Brady's triumph yet again on Twitter. And uh, and it just reinforced the fact that football is a white supremacist fantasy, right? Uh, I mean, uh, uh, Alabama and Clemson wear the national, win the national championship every year. Tom Brady's winning Super Bowls at uh, 43, age of 43. And no, there are no black uh, coaches, head coaches in the NFL. So they'd be this, all the good reasons why to not watch that sport. I'm very happy to be watching baseball. Uh, or talking baseball with you, I should say. I will say, though, 
so I am a Tom Brady hater. I mean, no doubt. But I will. I had to think about that. The the Bucks did have uh, two black coordinators and two women coaches, and then I saw the woman who was a ref. And once again, I'm thinking, where is baseball? Point, I mean, yeah, no, point well taken. No, that's definitely true. Um, uh, that's absolutely true. Um, and we'll see if if some of this translates into head coaching jobs. Although again. You know, I, underst- I understand the arguments uh, here. We're talking football, which we're not supposed to do, but I'll do it anyway um, uh, for, you know, advocating for black head coaches uh, in the NFL. But it, it, at the same time, I, I'm not I'm not going to get excited about a head coach presiding over a sport that destroys the brains of black men. Right. Uh, that's just not something that excites me, although I understand the importance of that argument. I mean, Bill Roden made an impassioned argument uh, uh, on social media the other day, basically calling on the NFL again to, to do the right thing. He had a great line. He said, do the right thing now so that you don't have to apologize for not doing the right thing 50 years later or something like that. Right. And so it was a really compelling. I'm really I admire the advocacy of black journalists on this question of, um, of, uh, of the, the, the absence, the canoe absence or the, the minimal number of black head coaches in the NFL. There's a seriously weird thing going on with the Texans now where the, the quarterback wanted was advocating for and he happens to be one of the best quarterbacks in the game for a coach of color to be hired but the team seems to be uh, this is going to trigger lincoln but being run by some kind of jim jones equivalent right now and just the the situation is is very snarled but they're going to end up keeping jim jones and losing the quarterback which is never the right decision to make forgetting about another quarterback who finally made history if we're going to talk nfl Tom Flores finally got into the Hall of Fame. Yeah, point well taken. I know who that is. The man has two Super Bowl rings, Oakland Raiders head coach, and he waited so long. You know, so let, let's that, that was probably the only good news. Hey, am I allowed to um, be excited that spring training starts next week, or is that I'm supposed to be yeah, um, sure. miserable? Are you allowed? Why are you asking that question? Yes, of course. Well, because I mean, it's not uh, you know, with this group, it's not the end thing to be happily excited about something. That's not true. <laughs> We're all excited about this. I am. I, I am the most gloomy person, I think, on average. Oh, I, I think I beat out. I don't know. Uh, and <laughs> well, it depends what we're talking about. But even, even, even I am excited about spring training started because I mean, the reason I'm excited is because I realize we're so hopeless as far as doing everything right at all that it doesn't matter anymore. It's just let it wash over you. Let all the wrongness wash over you, and just concentrate on the baseball, and then you'll be fine. I have a colleague at Columbia who, when his daughter was very young, introduced me to her as Uncle Grumpy. (laughs) (laughs) That's all you need to know. More serious issue, though. Tova, you brought this up about where is baseball in terms of, of gender representation. And one of the things that frustrated me is that the Marlins correctly got kudos for bringing Kim Ng in as the general manager this winter. But then they've been almost totally inert since then, they've made a couple of moves. They added Adam Duvall the other day. But it's just a, another example, or at least I'm afraid of, of this, of when women or minorities get a chance at one of these high-profile positions. It's usually with the, the remaindered organizations, the, the bargain bin organizations that are in some kind of trouble, and they're almost set up to fail. And I feel fairly certain with that organization that she is, depending on how you define success, if success is is being competitive on a regular basis, that's just not something that's going to happen there. That's exactly right. That the, I mean, that that that's the, we see we see the history of hiring of uh, minoritized candidates for head positions, exe- you know, executive or coaching. You see that pattern over again, and this is something that folks talked about in the case of the Texans, who just hired a black coach, right? In a in a situation where their best quarterback is not likely to be be around very long, much longer. So yeah, no, that 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 that's a that's been a consistent pattern. I'm less pessimistic about the Marlins' future than I have been in the past, but that's not saying much, obviously. But, you know, there's some talent there and everything. But I think Steve's right. They haven't done anything else this winter. I would like to believe that, because I'm being naive now, but I'd like to believe that this is a a, a corner-turning sort of point for the Marlins. They had a decent season last year. They've got a lot of young, good pitching. Maybe Ng's going to finally get to do some things. But, you know, we don't know, because maybe Ng also is 
of the same mind of 95% of, you know, Major League Baseball's executives where uh, no matter what your gender is, you're all about cutting costs for ownership. So, yeah, we don't know yet. How do you cut costs on the Marlins, though? Well, the Marlins have had this also this history of, you know, very high swing, big, big swings between highs and lows. And, and you know, a successful year for the Marlins, I believe, is to be still playing in, in Florida at the end of the year. Uh, the way the way that franchise has that's a measure of success. Well, I mean, not for the rest of us, but but I mean, but 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 Craig's point is right. I mean, not all teams try to win now, so to measure that, to set that as their criteria for an executive when that may not be the goal of the organization. Well, that actually segues us into, uh, if we're ready, um, the topic du jour, which um, we thought we'd talk about some of the labor issues uh, confronting baseball right now, have confronted baseball before, and check in on where we are with that and talk about, maybe reflect a little bit about how labor negotiations in MLB are sort of similar and not similar to the state of labor in other spheres. And I want to just start with Craig to start to update us on what the current situation is. Sure. As we are recording right now, we are about ready to enter a about as normal a season as we could have under the circumstances. Uh, spring training is about to begin. The season will begin uh, on the previously scheduled opening day. And other than no fans in the stands or very few fans in the stands, uh, things are going to try to look normal. But that was not clear, at least until about a week ago. Major League Baseball still, and I think it still wants, but it's not going to get, uh, wanted the season to start late. Uh, they wanted to delay the season at least a month. Um, they claimed it was, you know, for COVID safety, but it was really about, we want fans in the stands. Um, the major league baseball players association did not want to delay the season because based on what happened last year, they, they realized that major league baseball is going to want to dock them pay for all the games that are missed or delayed. Uh, they have no incentive whatsoever to do it. And, uh, major league baseball inserted, uh, something of a poison pill. I don't know if it was a poison pill cause they really hoped it would be actually, brought up but major league baseball wanted to expand the playoffs and what was a big money grab that totally takes everything beyond the scope of just how can we play the 2021 season and and goes into much bigger and deeper issues uh, about labor so the the upshot of all that is uh just to try to do the two or three things necessary to play the season uh the the sides got into all kinds of things that they're not going to agree on in a very short period of time to play the season and and what it speaks to is there's a huge amount of distrust between the union and the league uh there is a very strong element of we want what we want and we don't care what you want from the league in approaching negotiations because it has gotten its way for so long uh when talking to the union it just doesn't sort of have the muscle memory of how we actually negotiate instead of dictate. And then the union for its part, you know, starting last year was the first time in several years where, where there was actually something approaching solidarity. You throw, you know, and that means that there's going to be more conflict with, with the league. You throw all that together against a backdrop where the players have been losing ground to the owners as far as revenue and and salaries and everything for the last several years. And you've got a pretty toxic situation uh, now, you know, nine or 10 months out from when serious negotiations for the next collective bargaining agreement are going to begin. It expires at the end of December. So, but um, Steve, let me turn to you because they did, they did agree on some stuff, at least for this season, about some rules and also the um, health and safety protocols that I thought, you know, wasn't a bad compromise. The one that surprised me in terms of privacy issues is that the players will be required to have a wearable tracker for where they're when they're in team facilities so that should they turn out to have encountered the death spore somewhere their activities in terms of who they shared rooms with or or weight machines with or, or what have you can be more easily traced which is sensible in a certain sense, but this has been one of the issues that people have predicted were coming for team sports for a long time, just because we now have this technology that can do all these things for us. And and sometimes they're beneficial things. And I I know during my extensive gym time, I have sometimes worn a Fitbit or, or that sort of thing so that I had an idea of how many steps I was doing or how many calories I was burning or so on. And, and now they can track your sleep. They can they can track your heart rate. They Some of them claim to be able to do blood pressure. Or even I, I saw an ad for one 
that claimed to be able to do stick-free insulin tracking. I'm, I'm not sure how that's possible. It sounds very Theranos to me, but I'm not sure about that. But <laughs> the problem in terms of labor issues for that is that if you were to put this on a professional athlete and teams would be collecting all this data, it could arguably be used against a player in a negotiation subsequently. You know, we really don't like your uh, your heart rhythms and presages your decline a year from now, so we're going to offer you less money or perhaps, you know, something less fanciful than that. But that the players agreed to this I don't. I don't mean to to do sort of have sort of a, a doomsday mentality about this, but it's an interesting first step in what may be subsequently a next, excuse me, frontier of of the labor wars. Not only did they agree to it, they agreed to tie penalties, financial penalties, to you know malfeasance while wearing it. Because if someone is found to have, if someone tests positive, if someone is misses games because of a COVID infection, and it is found that they uh, got that infection because they violated some of the other rules, such as, you know, hanging out at a bar or doing something else, uh, they're going to get dock game pay. It, it won't just be like getting an injury. They're going to they're going to lose their game pay. That's part of the agreement. Um, so the, the precedent of penalties, financial penalties being tied to what's happening while we're tracking you with your little Fitbit thing um, is going to be set this year. Someone's going to screw up and that's going to happen. And then next year or the year after when there's a grievance that, you know, someone, you know, didn't get their option picked up because of whatever tracking was happening. Major league baseball is going to say, no, no, this is a, We have a precedent for this. We've done this before. You didn't have a problem then. And, and so you can't do it now. And some dumb arbitrator who doesn't realize what the substantive issues are will say, yeah, we agree with the league. I suspect over these are not the compromise you were thinking of when you posed the question. Uh, not so much. <laughs> <laughs> We talked about the double headers and the. Se siente bien saber que cuando le pones sirope a tu big breakfast with hot cakes de McDonald's, tú controlas dónde cae. Primero se acerca tu biscuit y rodea la salchicha, luego llega a tus hash browns y finalmente a tus huevos revueltos, dándoles ese sabor dulce del maple. Ordena por anticipado en el lab de McDonald's y que fluya el sirope. Para pa pa pa. Mobile order and pay in McDonald's participantes ergir la descarga y registro. Life gets more magical when you dream. So dream of a Disney cruise filled with magic and wonder. <laughs> Hiya, pal. Sail from Florida to Disney's private island paradise and get ready for a dream come true with Disney Cruise Line. So the health and safety protocols actually are really strict. And, um, you know, I was kind of impressed with that. And I was, I mean, you raise a good point, but I was impressed that the league, that, that both the league and the players agreed to that, particularly my particular favorite of you actually have to wear your mask over your nose, which makes me crazy. Um, but yes, there were <laughs> other things agreed to, which probably we don't like, which is the seven inning doubleheader thing. And the runner at second base uh, in extra innings. Um, no DH. And I feel like there's a fourth thing that I'm forgetting. When Steve was talking about that, a couple things struck me. One is, this sounds like working in an Amazon warehouse. Obviously a highly paid, it's not exactly. But the way that Jeff Bezos has enriched himself so much by squeezing every... I mean, Frederick Taylor was a bloody piker compared to this. <laughs> and that's where that's where the, 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 the movement... That's where business is going. But also that COVID in general requires two things, you know, to beat this this pandemic. One is the individual kind of responsibility to wear a mask, to practice social distancing. And the second is government policies that make sense. And we've had, you know, we've had, for example, very good scientific effort to get the vaccine created. But, you know, we didn't have anything. You know, the official government policy for months before the election was ignored and it will go away. Well, that didn't work out. And what, what I'm concerned is that a pattern of, as we come out of this, the way that powerful businesses and other similar entities will make more requirements on their workers and will we'll get a culture that's used to that. When you're talking about someone being docked pay because they were exposed themselves to the virus, something like that, I'm thinking of, you know, the player who injures himself doing something that's not in their contract, which has always been part of baseball, but we haven't known all of the cases. 
and so that they will be able to monitor that more closely. And my question is, who benefits from that? Obviously, the owners, not the individual players. But what worries me is, is what about the fans? What about the game itself? You know, this uh, the Yankee Stadium or you know Fenway Park or Wrigley Field is not an Amazon warehouse. Mercifully, it is a place of of entertainment. It's a place of of baseball. It's a place of you know camaraderie among fans and friends and things like that. You don't have to go to a baseball game. And if and and as we squeeze joy out of the process, and this is not you know COVID is serious. We have to have protocols, and I'm glad that you have to wear your mask over your nose. And I don't think it's good when ball players, regardless of the sport, you know, go out and break the rules and then bring the COVID back. But but there's got to be an, an approach here that that makes that that works for everybody, including the fans, because if this is joyless, you know, it's not like baseball is picking up market share. You know, of kind of people's entertainment dollar and time. And it's not like young people are flocking to the game the way they have in previous generation. So it creates a vibe that I don't know is, is really good for the game. Well, is there something in the that was agreed to that you think the Players Association should have rejected? Well, I mean, I, I think the players themselves want a lot of this. That That's the thing that I think people miss. Um, like last year when, say, someone was infected or when the thing happened with the Marlins or whatever, if you see interviews with players, they're they're angry, right? They're they're angry that someone screwed up because you're hurting my chance to win a championship, or you're hurting the team's chance, or you're being irresponsible. And and so a lot of players are really wanting this kind of thing. Um, you know, it's like it's like with you know whether it's uh, you know getting a DUI or taking performance enhancing drugs. Well, they don't care if you take performance enhancing drugs. But it's when you get caught and you get suspended, players get really really mad. Um, at their teammates, at opposing players that that disrupt the competitive place of the game. So it's not so simple, I think, to say, well, th- this is joyless for the players. In, in some ways, the players are the ones moving for this, you know, even more strongly than than the teams are. So it's kind of a complicated issue. COVID was different because the whole team had to go into quarantine. Like the whole team couldn't play. Where with PEDs, you know, they, they have the one player suspended and it does affect the team because there's the absence of that player. But you're not shutting the whole team down for two weeks. I don't want to sound like, you know, this is COVID is people are using this to, to stop our freedoms. I, I'm not trying. I really don't. I obviously don't believe that. And I don't want to sound that way. And I realize I may have come off that way. But I, what, what concerns me is that the player is that is that this will continue after COVID passes. And that is a problem too, because, you know, you, you, on the one hand, you have to have these protocols. Yeah. I mean, I, I support, for example, a mask mandate in airports on federal property in all of that. At the same time, I don't support, you know, uh, increased tracking. I mean, if you're watching the impeachment hearings, one of the things that is really extraordinary, and I'm not, not, eval- I'm not making a value judgment here, is just how much video there is. Can you imagine if this had happened in 1980, if Jimmy Carter, upon losing the election, this is obviously a weird counterfactual, had, had you know, mobilized a bunch of his supporters like you know Willie Nelson and Bob Dylan get, getting hot and storming the Capitol. Can you imagine that? No, you can't. But just take a moment and imagine it. The reason I say that is you would have a total, a total of about two hours of footage from about you know five networks. 10 networks, most of which would just be like, you know, the floor or something as they were trying to get in position. But now it, it is it is just a reminder of, of the, how much the world we live in is different and and how that affects every aspect, including baseball. So what, what I, I do support, you know, strong COVID protocols, but I'm also we have to work with those and think about what happens beyond beyond COVID. And, you know, like as far as I'm concerned, if if it's a public health issue, we can wear masks the rest of our lives. I don't need to see people's faces. But you, you know what? I it occurred to me the other day that I haven't had a cold in a year, the common cold. And who enjoys the common cold, right? I mean, it's it's not likely to off you in most circumstances, but it sure can make you miserable for for a while. And among the reasons that I that I have not, I mean, first of all, I haven't left this room in almost 12 months. But beyond that, I mean, when I do, I wear a mask and other people are, for the most part, wearing masks. And what if it just makes sense to wear a mask a lot of the time so that you're not picking up all of these common infections that make life miserable and 
cause you to to go through a, a caseload of tissues a couple of times a year. Here's the thing that, to your point, Lincoln, I, I'm sorry, I know I've been talking a lot, but this is like right right to Lincoln's point, I think of, and, and it relates to what what we have agreed to in baseball or what the players in the in the league have agreed to in baseball. There are a great number of things that are smart. Uh, there are a great number of things that deal with the, the with the pandemic, um, but that also have other applications later that might not be great. And I look at say the the, the seven inning double headers and the uh, and the the runner on second. These are things people talked about way before the pandemic. There were people in baseball that wanted this stuff. There are people in player development that really hate. 17 inning games because it screws up bullpens. There are uh, reporters and executives and managers and players that worry about games going late into the night are, are fatiguing and 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 it, it makes their jobs harder. There are people that wanted to get rid of uh, pitchers batting in the National League for forever because pitchers can't bat. And almost everything that baseball has sort of decided beyond just the bare bones of here's where you wear a mask and here's where you don't. There's an argument for something else there, too. And, and the league and the union are both sort of, you know, it's not very obvious unless you're someone who's an obsessive like me who watches all the little things they do all the time. But it's very obvious that this is all designed to let's create a precedent for the future. Major League Baseball's insistence on trying to get an expanded playoffs for this year is completely about or was completely about having it be a two-year precedent heading into the new collective bargaining agreement to say, how could you upset this thing that is now a tradition two years running? Um, well, so what is your assessment of the the, the way the union act, behaved during all this and including before going back two weeks when MLB wanted to shorten the season and also have expanded playoffs and the Players Association turned that down and the PR was completely lopsided, by the way, with the, the the owners looking like, you know, the good guys, I think, and the players really coming off as, oh, but this is the perfect scenario. You know, you're going to play 154 games and you're going to get paid for all for 162. What's the problem? Yeah, there, there's a huge reason why the PR looks so good. It's because almost all of the big voices in baseball media either work directly for the league or work for rights holders for the league. I mean, Ken Rosenthal literally takes paychecks from both Major League Baseball and Fox Sports, both of whom have a vested financial, legitimately, like literally vested financial interest in expanded playoffs, as does Ken, because he'll be on national TV more. And he's the one out there beating the drum for expanded playoffs. Same with Buster Olney and ESPN, who's a sideline reporter for a rights holder. Um, don't even get me started. Also, one side does one side does PR and one yeah, side exactly. doesn't. I don't understand. Right. I mean, the, the Players Association has money. They could do a, They could do better public relations. They could do better media relations. They really have never done that. There's no upside for them. I And so not that I want to. There's no upside to them for doing that? There's no upside. They have they have determined there is no upside. They, That's they their tried, view. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And well, it's their view based on a lot of experience because they tried very hard to do that in the 90s around the time of the strike. They tried very hard to do that in the early 2000s. They tried to do it during steroid stuff. Um it, at any given time, there's like one dude or three dudes max in the in baseball media who who will give the union a fair hearing. Um, Murray Chass, you know, for years was the only person. Uh, I mean, he was a seriously good reporter who handled labor issues very, very well. There was no one else doing what he did and no one else would listen to him. Um, now you got, you know, me and a few other people that are, are really on the, the pro labor beat in Major League Baseball. Um but, you know, we're sort of not listening to the player side. There's just the fans don't want to hear it. They, they just don't. They don't want to hear players saying that their lot is bad. And they are so predisposed to rooting for the laundry and identifying with the team as an institution that they are always going to side with the owner, whether they realize they're siding with the owner or not, because players are attacking baseball and baseball status quo is how they see it. So and. I don't think I'm talking out of school to say that I've had conversations with people at the union who have explicitly told me, we know that happens. It doesn't matter. We're going to win our battles in the negotiating room, not in the media, because we will never win in the media. But, you know, it's funny. I mean, you're you're totally right, Craig. But I mean, that's always been the case, right? I mean, like, uh, yeah. I mean, they're having, uh, the, the, you know, the fans weren't on the side of uh of the Major League uh, Baseball Players Association when Marvin Miller and Donald Fear were running it, right? And yet they made it. Oh, 100, 120 years ago. I, I did this article a couple of years ago where I went back, you know, researching news archives, trying to find news stories where it was, these greedy players want this. Why don't they just want to play the great game of baseball? You can find quotes on that going back to like the 1880s. I guess what I'm saying is that it makes you wonder why why there could be more imaginative PR from, from the union. Um 
you know, even because it, it, it's true, they, they they lose the PR war. But it, 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 I, I do have the same question. And again, I don't know anybody in the union. I don't know major league baseball players as to why they're not more aggressive uh, in in framing their their issues around larger societal issues. I mean, they are the labor aristocracy vis-a-vis most American workers, but they're still workers. They're still employees. It's sort of what uh, you know Howard Bryant has said that the black athletes are the the, 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 one of the highest paid employees, black employees in the country. Uh, and, and, you know, the Bay, major league baseball players are among the highest paid employees uh, in, in the country for sure, but that they're still employees. They're not owners. Right. So, and they, and they still skew, but the thing is they skew so overwhelmingly conservative in every other thing. You, you, and I think that's the thing. Yeah. The demographic of the players has changed. I mean, that's a big part. No, because I mean, if you're looking at labor activism and professional sports, you know, black athletes have been at the center of it you know, in all the major sports in this country from Kurt Flood. To Oscar Robertson, to yep. Spencer Haywood, Gene Upstraw, you know, he was less effective in the NFL, you know, and they had a demographic on their side, which and it seems like Tony Clark doesn't have that demographic, I guess is what you're saying. A, a huge reason why the union lost currency for about 10 or 12 years there is because the union, not just because they were making a lot of money, it was because the union membership was completely comprised of people who were born and raised post Reagan era. And they were basically you know, socialized in a world where in their world where unions are evil and bad, business is great. And, you know, they, they live in the South, they live in exurban communities. And so you, you force them to become members of a union uh, to play baseball. And they're like, okay, that's what we got to do. And we're, we're all for it as far as, you know, making sure we get our paychecks and everything. But if you try to push that beyond any sort of activism, uh, you know, and it's changing. It's changing now in the last few years. I, I want to be clear about that. But for a long time, if you try to push it to any other area beyond just what is good for the players, uh, there was a lot of pushback because you got these guys that are uncomfortable being considered labor to begin with. It's always framed badly, whether by them or or by the media. And how many times have we heard when there is a labor conflict in baseball? Oh, it's the millionaires versus the billionaires. So there's no one to sympathize with. But that has been in different ways, in different contexts, the way most labor struggles have been framed in in America, not necessarily as millionaires versus billionaires, but in in terms of greedy workers or greedy owners. Going back to the wobblies, going back to the birth of... Look at at what's going on with school reopenings right now. We decided as a country, we decided that it was more important to have bars and restaurants open in the summer than schools open in the fall. And who is being attacked every day in the media? And there's a consensus that it's their fault. Watch the national media. What you hear is the teachers' unions, the teachers' unions, and the teachers' union. And then every other day, beloved teacher in some part of the United States dies of COVID. If you are a teachers' union representative in New York, in San Francisco, anywhere in the United States, you as a union representative cannot send your members in to die. And that is what the, the... that we're there being asked to do, and it's because people are so primed to blame the unions no matter what. And the Baseball Players Association, the MLBPA, is just a part of that. Such a great point, Lincoln, because you know, living here in Champaign, we get to hear a lot of new news coming out of Chicago. And you know, the Chicago Teachers Union, they you know, they're just bringing everything down, is what the news is reporting. And should the union give in? It's like you're sending teachers who have not been prioritized in getting their COVID vaccines. They have not been prioritized in receiving PPE. These schools have not been updated in their ventilation system. It's like, no, 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 we have to reopen schools. And you have the mayor of Chicago, who's a supposed leftist, who's like, no, no, they got to, you got to, you know, the union is stopping us from getting our schools reopened. We need to take care of the mental health of our children. We got to, so how come you didn't spend money on getting them PPE? How come you didn't, you know, this is no surprise that we are. So are you guys, are you guys saying then that um, to the extent that the players association is weak, um, that that's a function of labor having declined so much and having such a bad rap in general? I, I would say more the latter than the former. It is that, that, Consumers, in this case baseball fans, are primed to blame labor, not just because they're millionaires, so to speak, and not just because they're wealthy men of color, which is also important, but but they've been told when in doubt, it's the union's fault. And we've been told that for decades. And you hear that. And that is what's driving this. Yeah, that's a huge part of it. Another part about their their current weakness to the extent they are weak 
is, you know, they sort of backed themselves in a corner with two or three bad collective bargaining agreements in a row that did not work out to their advantage. And it's put them in a position where, you know, on, on a lot of pocketbook issues, they, they don't have what they want, but they also don't have anything really that they can trade uh, to get it back. They, they can't, you know, you can't turn back the clock to the situation that existed in 19, you know, 97 or, or 1992 or whatever, uh, or even, you know, 2005. And so they're, they're sort of screwed in a certain number of ways about what we can negotiate for. So, so their power now has to come from, you know, what is sometimes the hardest thing to get in a negotiation is just sort of inherent power of solidarity and the threat of a work action, as opposed to having something to trade. And so that that ups the brinksmanship and it also ups the unpopularity The the players can't right now say we'll give you X if we get Y on very many issues because they don't have any X. Um, but they can sort of threaten or start to begin to posture in a way that that makes them seem intransient, which is actually good for them. Right. Because that's that's where the real power is. We're going to strike. We're, we're going to walk out. And but by doing that, that is, you know, the top of the unpopularity scale as far as fans and the public go. So building off Craig's point and then also venturing a little bit into Frank's territory, and that is fans see that when ticket prices goes up, somehow it's because of player salaries, even though it's been disproven so often that that's not the reason why prices go up. Part of the reason why prices have gone up and there's a greater scarcity of tickets of sorts is that just about every major league team has gotten a new stadium and players don't get much out of that at all out of these new stadium constructions, and they typically are smaller seating capacity than the previous stadium. And so, yet yeah, ticket prices go up. And, you know, this is part of the issue with how many stadiums have been redone. The Braves got another new stadium, <laughs> you know? And, and, and you know, the Marlins, the Marlins stadium a is a boondog. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and, and this is... Loria sells the team and makes money, and then it's like, oh, I, I think some guy, Craig Casatera, wrote about this. Is paying about, you know, what? What he agreed to, fifteen million dollars out of what is supposed to pay three hundred million. Yeah, it's just incredible. Well, and who's really paying for them, right? It's the people in those yeah. cities, yeah. us. I mean, how much taxpayer money goes towards this stuff? And now, as Craig has been writing, and other people have been, we're, gonna, we're singing your praises, Craig. Uh, you know that these stadiums are now part of these real estate, you know, operations, right? So, uh, I mean, we see this, you know, with the with the Braves' new stadium in San Diego. We're seeing this in the reconfiguration <laughs> of Wrigleyville. So that now they're generating revenues not just from you know butts in the seats and television and things like that, but now it's part of this bigger real estate uh, development schemes that they've concocted uh, in recent decades. This is the new wave of uh, stadium construction now. And it's not money that the players will get because it's considered to be non-baseball revenue, even though it's a development built around a baseball park. Si tú y tus amigos ordenan en McDonald's, deja que los demás agarren su comida primero. Yo sé, el solo pensar en el olor de las papitas y tener que esperar suena loco. Pero por reglas si esperas, entonces las papitas que quedaron en el fondo de la bolsa son tuyas. Ordena por anticipado en el app y disfruta la recompensa de ser paciente. Para pa pa pa. Mobile Order and Pay en McDonald's participantes se requiere la descarga y registro. Ay, qué hambre. ¿Pasamos por McDonald's? Va. ¿Qué ordenas normalmente? Mm, una quarter pounder. Ah, eres una burger person. <ríe> Llenos McNuggets. Ah, eres de las mías. <ríe> El la mejor manera de conocer a alguien deal de McDonald's. Ordena por anticipado por el app de McDonald's y llévate dos de tus favoritos, como un McNuggets de 10 piezas y una quarter pounder por solo 6 dólares. Precios y participación pueden variar producto individual a precio regular. risk of sounding boring and or pedantic about this, it seems to me that in the long run, this isn't good for the product. It seems to me that in the long run, nothing about this makes baseball more enjoyable for the fans, including rising ticket prices. And and also, you know, one, and I've said this before in our conversation about Henry Aaron, but, and, and I'm not only talking about players like Henry Aaron, because there weren't many, but play, baseball, baseball is a story. 
right? When you go to a game, it's a sports, but it's also a story. You know, you're, the Chicago Cubs are playing the Pittsburgh Pirates. You know, Ernie Banks is playing Paul Wehner, right? I mean, it, it occurs in this long historical context. It's, you know, your, your grandfather's favorite team versus your friend's grandfather's favorite team, et cetera, et cetera. And, and the, the players, the, 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 the protagonists in that story are not owners and, and, you know, people with business degrees from fancy universities who are general managers. They're the players. And the, the current labor – and this isn't just the, the labor negotiations, the labor agreement. This is the way baseball has moved. You push out those stories because we have – we don't have as many players with longer careers because it basically the owners – the teams have figured out rightly that paying people at 35, 36 years old it doesn't make a lot of sense anymore. And pitchers don't even pitch in whole games. So and now as prices go up, as it becomes part of kind of that shopping dining experience, you know, you got to keep you got to keep the core product good and I and I worry about that. Craig talked earlier about that the the players association and the owners don't trust each other and there isn't a lot of there hasn't been a lot of solidarity within the union which of course is sort of a prerequisite for everything. And I keep thinking about historically um under different uh, directors of the Players Association, that they were able to galvanize people. I mean, going back to Marvin Miller, where he came into a situation where, there, I mean, there really was no union um, at all. And the players didn't have the first understanding of what a union was supposed to be or should be doing. And even in later years under other directors, they just, I don't know if they were more charismatic or what the deal was, but if solidarity is, if solidarity is an issue, that seems like something that a very um, strong leader of the union could try to do something about it. I don't know anything about Tony Clark. Honestly, that's why I ask about the PR thing too, because I never see Tony Clark. So Tony, yeah, Tony Clark, that's interesting on him because he's actually a very popular figure among players and his role was misunderstood. I think everybody sort of has this idea of the Marvin Miller figure and the Don Fear figure who not only were they the public face, but they also, you know, went into the negotiating room and, and, you know, hammered it out. Uh, Clark's position is a lot. I mean, I think that the players union, when Michael Weiner, its its previous director, died, um, the, the players union was in a very bad place. Not just because you know he he died young and unexpectedly. Well, he, he had cancer, but you know died before his time. There was a solidarity issue, and there was this sense that the people that and, and the players association, the best way to think about it structurally, is it's a law firm. Like if you go into their offices in New York, there's like you know, twenty seven lawyers and support staff, and then some other people. But it's a law firm. And uh, that sort of didn't have a great communication structure with players. Tony Clark was a very well-respected player, was very in tune and very in touch with the union issues, and was seen as a guy who could sort of bridge the gap between what those people in the law firm are talking about and what the players need. And he's been actually pretty successful in that. And when the when the union screws up and when they make a bad deal or something happens, he's the one, you know, what the hell is Tony Clark doing? Well, he's obviously in charge, but he's not the guy who, you know, maybe made a bad calculation. It's a group effort. Um, so it's kind of hard to, you know, people get a, a, a very skewed version of how the union works. And I, I used to be very hard on Tony Clark until I started to understand a little bit that dynamic. But uh, it's, it's very strange. I don't think it's about strong leadership. I think it's more about what's at stake at a given time. And when you're Marvin Miller and you walk into a complete mess where guys aren't even getting their pensions funded and they're making less money than if they quit to go be a beer distributor somewhere, uh, it's pretty easy to convince guys that, you know, with a couple of easy wins early against a very weak opponent and the owners who were so complacent, it was not even funny. Um, it's very easy to start to get buy-in. And then when you have some big issues that escalate and escalate into the 1970s and you win and you win and you win because you were fighting against, frankly, morons. Um, and if you don't believe me, read the, uh, uh, read the book, Lords of the Realm came out in the 90s about the history of labor and baseball it just tells you or, just or marvin miller's autobiography which is also a yes. really great book and and unintentionally well no i should say intentionally hilarious at times just because he writes down what the owners negotiators and Bowie kuhn were saying yeah. to him at the at the time and and i was i don't, I don't mean to cut you off craig i just want to uh, amplify that the context has changed very much and that the owners did everything they could to empower Marvin Miller by pushing against him so strongly and not giving any any ground on anything on the just open belief that the players should should remain in sort of a surf-like position. And I think it was very easy for him to educate 
the membership. I don't want to say easy because he definitely got pushed back too. And people saying, you know, players saying things like, gosh, but that would be mean to the owners. For a us lot to, of pushback. A ton of pushback. And he made them all very rich. Marvin Miller made all those owners very rich. Yes. Yes. No. I mean, the, 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 competitive balances that shifted because of the advent of free agency and things like that. I mean, we're, we're actually really good things for the, for the game, but they did not accept that. And you can read things like Cardinals owner, Gussie Bush, getting his team together and yelling at them about how they were a bunch of entitled complacent uh, jerks who were alienating the fans. This is after they had won two consecutive pennants in a world series. He questioned their effort. This is right before the Kurt flood trade, actually like these are things that actually played into Marvin Miller's hands in terms of educating the, the membership, not, not just about sort of the the mechanical or functional aspects of what a union does and how it related to them and that they were entitled to a reasonable share of the profits or, or even the gross of this industry, but that the owners were really not on their side, were not benevolent overlords, but were just exploitative. And, and that dynamic continued, I would argue, all the way through the 1994-95 strike. Uh, in the late 80s, you had collusion, which was basically mustache twirling <laughs> evil on behalf of the owners. Uh, it was very easy to convince the players that they were against you. So, you know, Don Fear had a very easy job of maintaining solidarity. And then uh, running up into the 94-95 strike, it became very clear that Bud Selig and uh, uh, Jerry Reinsdorf, the owner of the White Sox, and that cabal of owners was going to completely try to hijack the league, force, uh, you know, break the union. Um, it was easy to fight them. Bud Selig lost, and he lost terribly uh, in the 94-95 strike. And then he got smart. And starting at about 1996, and then on, he played his hand very, very differently. Um, and the ownership ranks started to go behind him. The executive ranks started to get smarter, uh, started to get better about PR. Uh, players were very, very wealthy, didn't have nearly the stakes that, or didn't think they had nearly the stakes that they had 10, 15, 20 years ago. And that's when that began to change. And I would say that ever since the end of the strike, uh, in 95, that the tide has turned and it has been extraordinarily difficult to get the players to be uh, in solidarity. And, and that's only changed, I would say, in the last year. Craig, it seems you're also pointing out how there's been an evolution in team owners. Like you went from family-owned, run-operated teams to now former you know, CEOs and heads of business who are now bought these because they are profit revenue-generating machines that they can buy into to think of, you know, um, Warner and John Henry with the with the Red Sox and you know how they buy into they get Man U and so they have all these other Wait, Man, no. Manchester United for those who don't follow Liverpool Liverpool football. Liverpool sorry uh, okay thank you I just don't want Adrian to be killed by someone from Liverpool or Manchester because if you confuse those teams to them they will go after you <laughs> thank you. I have to say though this is the historian now the social movement person in this conversation right we've seen this pendulum has swung. Right. In different ways, there's a continuity around, you know, anti anti unionism that pervades U.S. history and the history of the West and capitalism, capitalist societies in general. Right. Um, so that's that's been a continuity. But but there has been this these continuums that have shifted over the years. And, you know, to me, I'm going to follow Tova. I do think, you know, some people in the union need to read the room that, you know, you, you're, you know, Craig, you mentioned the last year or two things are shifting. I really think that some good PR would really help. I really do. I really think that they need to read the room. They need to see what's been happening around pay equity with women's soccer. They need to see how strong the w, the NBA players union is. They need to see the kind of suffering that's happening right now in the larger world. And they need to frame their concerns around those issues. They do. I mean, I, I know it's a futile uh, task, I, I'm sure. But but I, I feel like solidarity always has to be constituted, whether you're Marvin Miller or Donald Fear or Tony Clark. Um, and maybe it's hard to do now. When I'm speaking to union officials, I, I tell them that they would do better with PR, and that's my way to try to get on-the-record quotes, but I, I've been unsuccessful. We're in a moment now where there's so much going on. To say in spring training of 2019, we don't need media relations, we don't need government relations, we don't need concrete, really strategic help here, is one thing. So much has happened in the last two years that to still have that position, it's just... I mean, having heard what Craig says and not being an, I mean, not, not being an insider at all, but I'm, I really was surprised when you said that. I mean, this is – I don't think you would have – I mean, I used to work in local politics in New York City a lot, and all of the unions had, had public relations people. All of the unions had media relations people. Some of them weren't always good, but they had them. 
And 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 of course you need that. I mean, that's like like the notion that you don't need that is just axiomatically not a serious one. Well, I think I I mean I don't mean to overstate it. They they have people. They have PR people. They have they hired a very in a high profile way. They hired Jerry Krasnick, the former ESPN baseball writer. Right. Uh, he works for the union. He does stories about them and their players and things that they're that's working on. That's not a PR on. person. Well, he's not, but they, they actually I mean, I don't have, mean anything. Uh, he's, I, I'm nothing about him, but I'm saying that's not a PR strategy. No, well, they, they do have PR people and they do have an operation, but they it, it, it is it is clearly centered more on the periphery of the union's work, the philanthropy that the union does and things like that. As opposed to, you know, when when there's a negotiation, you are not going to see their guy. Their guy's not going to come out and he's not going to text five reporters and say, here's what went down. Um, and, you know, I, I tend to agree with you. I think that a, a strategic and smart approach to that would benefit them a lot. They disagree. I understand why they disagree, given what the baseball media looks like right now. But, uh, you know, it's it's there. There are not reporters. There are not baseball reporters out there who are willing to give the union a fair shake or are able to give the union a fair shake. Not many of them. There are two elements to this. And one is that they'd better get on the ball with that because we're less than a year from the next CBA negotiation. And one of the things that they're going to hear from approximately 17,936 hack columnists, present company excluded, I know that neither of us will do this, Craig, is but we just had a pandemic and we mm-hmm. need baseball to bring us together. And Mike Trout doesn't want to heal the nation because he's such a greedy oh, bastard. Yeah. And yeah. they're going to hear it over and over and over again. So that's number one. And they folded on that basis after 9-11, by the way, which was when they had the last uh, contentious negotiation. This was in the 2001-2002 period. And it was the same thing. How can they not be there for us after the World Trade Center blew up? But the other aspect of that is, to contradict myself slightly, to to go back to the earlier point, I don't think that any PR effort can succeed other than marginally because of that millionaires versus billionaires characterization that happens. PR is much – it can, not by planting stories here and there, a comprehensive media relations strategy, comprehensive communication strategy could really turn things around. That's – no, no, I just because because Lincoln, look, the, the basis of every labor issue that's been misconstrued in the history of this country, as Frank was talking about, at its bottom is if an industry makes a dollar, what percentage of that dollar should get split between ownership and labor? Right. And that in baseball is very hard to frame for people because of the sheer amount of money. And it's even money. harder when you and don't even try. I mean, it's, it is, I'm not saying it's easy. I'm just saying it's impossible if you don't do it. And if I were running a union where there was so much money, it seems not to, not to invest in that is malpractice. Not because it's a guaranteed win, but because it's a guaranteed loss if you don't do it. No, I, I agree. I just doubt that the average American is going to. Well, the average it. American isn't going to be on the decision about hiring a PR, ha- having a media strategy. <laughs> <laughs> no, I was just going to ask where the player reps are in all this because they have some pretty dynamic people in that department. I, I don't, happen to know for the Nationals, right, Max Scherzer, who I wouldn't want to mess with. Yeah, well, it's funny. So the player reps, you know, they have a committee of of players who are like the leadership, and then every team has a rep or two. And that's another thing that's that's going to be hard, right? Because a thing that happened during the 94-95 strike is uh, the players' union decided that it's better for us to put our players out front than Donald Fair. Donald Fair was the, the, then the director was one of the most unpopular people because he had been, you know, around and always a bearer of bad news, and he's not a very pleasant guy just publicly. Um, so they decided to front the players and center the players in the in the PR during the strike. Tom Glavin was probably the lead union guy of all the players, the pitcher for the Atlanta Braves. Uh, he was very active in the union. He was also a big star. So, you know, uh, he was really out there. And he basically, and he's written about this. He's given interviews about this. He basically just took a beating every damn day. And he would go out and he would very, and he's a very smart guy. And he would go out and say, well, we're talking about this and this is what we're trying to communicate. And we're trying to work, you know, and then the next day there would be some column about this greedy ass player from Atlanta who makes X million dollars a year, doesn't understand that I'm trying to keep money on you know, food on the table for my kids. And we just want to enjoy a baseball game. Damn it. I mean that every single day and it started to grind on you. So the players are very wary now about being the face of that when it comes to labor. 
one thing that struck strikes me is that as you talk about this, the the players association is is kind of an odd union. One of the reasons it's an odd union is it doesn't do anything with any other unions, right? So right. for example, a couple of years ago, I remember the umpires were walking a picket line. I didn't hear any players saying maybe we shouldn't cross this picket line. Yeah, they, uh, they've, when, had, and, a, they've you know, had a big problem with and, that. The most that, you'll ever see is the Twitter account for the MLBPA will like retweet some other labor thing. I'm like, okay, thanks. well, that's really but, sad. But those, a lot of labor union members are baseball fans. So if you know when someone's at, when when some labor union is on strike, you know the I don't know the, the the bus drivers or something, that if the baseball players, you know, created a fund to help them to help their families, little things like that would help. You know, it's not just getting the story with Tom Glavin being portrayed more fairly that, that that's part of it but that's there can be more and part of it is their own it is that they, i think you're right then the kind of uh, conservatism of some of the members many of the members they they have bought into the anti-union narrative that has been so dominant so they don't see their role as a union relative to the rest of a larger labor movement which then undermines their position when they have to go in front of the american people i guarantee you there is a union I guarantee you there's a union rep who is all gung-ho from the MLBPA who is simultaneously thinking that those greedy warehouse workers for Amazon shouldn't have a union. I guarantee you that guy exists. Oh, I, I, I wouldn't doubt that for a minute. That's why I think – here's what I think we should do. I think we should offer the St. Ain't, uh, Ain't Contagious podcast uh, uh, as, a, as a venue where we can carry the water for the union <laughs> using a Calcaterra phrase when he talks about Ken Rosenthal. <laughs> <laughs> And I'm partially serious because, uh, you know, we should get Tony Clark on. Come on. I mean, with that, I mean, come on, there's smart people out there who can cover this shit. I mean, give me a break. Or Omar Minaya. Or Minaya. You know, somebody, I mean, I'm, I'm probably being, I'm, I'm joking. I, I feel like I'm not when I watch, you know, the way in which, you know, certain other journalists cover this and, and you know, I mean, Craig, you're, you know, and, and you're right. The, the landscape is much smaller with, when it comes to Major League Baseball. You know, journalists should be advocates. Uh, and why do they always have to be advocates for the owners? I don't, you know, you know I, I'm not sure that's an inevitable thing that has to be, you know, in, in place all the time. So there was something that happened last week um, that actually worked to the extent things work. Um, the, the debate about uh, give us the expanded playoffs in exchange for the DH. That's what the, the, the league's position was. And the union took the approach of we will look at your offer and then they took like 12 hours we look at your i'm sorry we're just going to go under what we have now and and go on that was initially portrayed by some very big feet in the baseball media as the players are unwilling to negotiate why are they unwilling to try to even talk why are they being so unreasonable so there's a guy named eugene friedman i'm sure some of you guys know him he's a he's a labor lawyer uh he actually works for a labor union he's very active on twitter and baseball twitter talking about labor labor issues he is a extremely smart guy and he's the biggest prince fan you're ever going to meet um, Eugene Freeman is, has sort of carved out a niche for himself, uh, of sort of explaining to non-lawyers, especially non-labor lawyers, cause I don't even know half the crap that he's talking about. And I have a law degree about how this actually works and why they can do and can't do certain things. And so the example with the expanded playoffs, there is a collective bargaining agreement in place right now. It is there. There's a thing in labor law about permissive and, uh, mandatory things that you negotiate. If you have an agreement in place and you agree to negotiate about something that you already have an agreement out about, it all of a sudden becomes something that you have to talk about. You could say, I don't want to because it's permissive. But once you engage, you have to begin to negotiate it. And if you begin to negotiate it and you come to what is legally an impasse, the owners are able to impose whatever they want. That's that's labor law. So if the owners say we want the expanded playoffs and we'll give you the DH and the league set and the, the players say, OK, we'll talk about that a little bit. And the talks get really bad and they can't come to an agreement and they reach an impasse. The owners can say, you know what, we're going to do the expanded playoffs. We're not going to give you any of the gate. And we're not going to do the DH. We're just imposing this because we're at an impasse. So there is zero incentive for the players who already have an agreement on the playoffs to talk about it while they have that agreement. No one knows this. No one understands that at all. Eugene Freeman last week, after Ken Rosenthal and Buster Olney and John Heyman and all those yahoos got on Twitter talking about the players being unwilling to negotiate, Freeman laid it out in about five tweets about legally it would be not just malpractice, but it would be like, you know, horrible for the union to even engage on this because it is so dangerous for them to do it from a legal perspective. Everyone shut up after that. And it's because there was someone who actually understood this stuff explaining it. 
Now, to Lincoln's point, the union could do a really good job of explaining that, but it's hard, right? There's technical terms there. There's stuff there that's hard for players, for, for fans and, and people to get their brain around, but it can be done. And to the extent it has been done, it's been done by people like Eugene and to a way lesser extent, people like me. I mean, this sounds so much like, you know, progressives in politics who always feel like their issues are just too complicated to get into a good messaging soundbite and the right is so good at it. And why is that? If you could do a tweet about permissive versus mandatory bargaining issues, God love you. That. But I don't um, know how you do that. Solidarity yeah. forever. Do you want to sing? Um, <laughs> I don't think this issue is going to go away. It's a, I think it's going to be an ongoing um, point of discussion the entire season, for better or worse. And we're pretty much out of time. So a lot more to say on this. And maybe I'll let Steve see us out with whatever new... Hokey. I, I want to sing the hokey. Excuse, excuse me. <laughs> That's my role here, huh? I'm going to sing the preacher and the slave now. That that would be an appropriate way to end this one. Great song, by the way. One of the great songs of the the uh, the labor movement by Joe Hill. You know, my favorite in that regard. Does everyone know the story about the ladies auxiliary Woody Guthrie and the ladies auxiliary that uh, a union asked him to to do a song about the ladies auxiliary? And I, I can't think of of what he wrote initially, but they complained that it didn't mention the ladies auxiliary often enough. So if you listen to the song he then followed up with, it is nothing but <laughs> saying the ladies auxiliary. It's a great auxiliary, the best auxiliary you ever did see. If you need an auxiliary, then the ladies' auxiliary, yes, that ladies' auxiliary, don't piss off Woody Guthrie, is the lesson of the story. As for us, we will be back next week with another mini episode. Note that I did not say interstitial this time. So wounded was I last time when my sixth grade bullies reemerged within this podcast to smack me down for using the right word professors man they're terrible i yeah they are they you can't you can't win somebody in the impeachment hearing today <laughs> used the word interstitial that's see it's catching and on and i thought steve is writing the briefs <laughs> <laughs> if only they would be even catchier i promise you they would not be hokey at all so next week's interstitial episode i believe will be the Titanic team up that you demanded, Craig Calcaterra and Lincoln Mitchell, on fandom and associated issues, don't do it. Say it ain't contagious has been, pardon the expression, spread to all major podcatchers anywhere that podcasts are served. You can follow us. And if you do enjoy the show, please rate, review, and subscribe. It helps us get attention. And you can follow us on Twitter. There is a Say It Ain't Contagious account in addition to all of our additional accounts. What is the Say It Ain't Contagious account since I've screwed this up at least once? S-I-A-C pod. M-O-U-S. Yes. S-I-A-C pod. <laughs> and with that, I think we're done. Any final words, Tova? Uh, no, I think that's it for now. And that was not hokey. It was beautiful. I'm sorry I said you were hokey. I thought we agreed. No more football. <laughs> Yeah, well, the Jets aren't really football. Nine one one, what's your emergency? Senora, me está diciendo que un tren le pego a una camioneta. No puedes saber a qué velocidad viene un tren. Por eso están los señalamientos de advertencia. Obedécelos. Alto. El tren no para. Mensaje de Netza. Se siente bien saber que cuando le pones sirope a tu Big Breakfast with the Hotcakes de McDonald's, tú controlas dónde cae. Primero se acerca tu biscuit y rodea la salchicha, luego llega a tus hash browns y finalmente a tus huevos revueltos, dándoles ese sabor dulce del maple. Ordena por anticipado en el lab de McDonald's y que fluya el sirope. Para pa, pa, pa. Móvil Order and Pay en McDonald's participantes, se requiere la descarga y registro.